0: Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at
1: upperroom.ca. I would like to read to you Matthew 3, 13 through four eleven. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, Happy New Year, and welcome again to Upper Room. My name is Dave, and uh, I serve as the site pastor here. For those of you that are joining us uh, for the first time this morning, we're really glad that you're with us. Uh, For those that have been around for a long time, we're glad you're here too, so don't worry about that. And uh, for those that have been kind of journeying with us over the last couple of months, uh, you know that we've kind of been longing to be back in this room, and and the, the town has told me that they're still in the process, there's still some trim work, and they're sorting out storage and some speakers and things like that. But for the next couple of weeks, we're going to make ourselves at home. We're going to make ourselves comfortable uh, right here. And so we're really glad uh, to be up and rolling here as part of this new year. So it is a new year. I wonder how many of you are feeling this new you that everyone is promising. You got, if anybody feeling brand new, all of a sudden six days into 2019, is anybody feeling that? Wow, that is just an overwhelming response, so I don't know how to interpret that at this point in the game. Um, Did any of you set New Year's resolutions? I won't make you say them out loud, just out of curiosity, show of hands. Anybody set New Year's resolutions? Yeah, okay, cool, that's good. um, I was reading an article in The Atlantic that was published on January 2nd, and they said that uh, the majority of New Year's resolutions that are set can be boiled down basically into two uh, categories. One of them is to, uh, to lose weight to be thinner, and the other one is to amass wealth. Okay, so basically everything, all of them, one way or another, that's what people are looking for. And then way down the list, in terms of what they said was prioritized by people, um, being more kind was one, uh, being more spiritual was one, and then also being less worried or less stressed out this year. Those, those are kind of uh, the ones that The Atlantic is saying everything kind of gets boiled down to these categories. And what was interesting is they actually did um, a, his, a, a survey of some historical polling, and they saw that for like for years for the most part, North Americans have been making the exact same types of resolutions. Not much has changed is basically what's being said there. And so when you look at a New Year's resolution, you can call it what you want, New Year's resolution, goal setting, New Year, New Year, whatever you want to call it. Essentially what it looks like is identifying a problem and then identifying a solution, right? You identify a problem and you say, no, I don't want that anymore, no to this problem. I have a solution, I say yes to this solution. So real simple, no to popcorn, no to chips. I put salt and vinegar chips and popcorn in the same bowl. That is fabulous. If your resolution is for the thin thing, you might not want to try this out. But if you're New Year's resolution is to try new things, then go for it, same bowl, But you say no to those things, those are the problem. The solution is, uh, whatever, it's losing weight, being healthier, whatever it might be. So no to those things, yes to exercise. Uh, if it's about if, if it's about money, maybe it's not about amassing wealth, maybe it's just about being in control of your finances. It's no to frivolous spending and yes to uh, saving, yes to budgeting, yes to being in control of our finances, whatever it might be. If you're saying no to stress, then you're saying, okay, no, that's the problem no to that, yes to stress reducing activities, whatever those might be. And then we often stress ourselves out trying to find the right thing to do to calm us, our nerves, right? This is kind of the human condition, isn't it? And I think that for the most part, this works for for some people. But it doesn't work for everybody. The reality is that these, this way of looking at, um, you know, a, a New Year's resolution or, or what we want to do with our lives, it might be on, in the simple terms, it might look like that, but it's not working. And, and what I mean by this is another group, Strava, which is a social networking for athletes. Last January, they did a survey of 31 and a half million people. Okay. And their activities that they set out to do in the month of January of 2018. And what they were able to do is they were able to pinpoint the second Friday of January as what they now dub Quitter's Day. So, so what's happening is people are, uh, new year, new you, new year's resolutions, no to this, yes to that, but then something happens 12 days into the month when all of a sudden it's like, no, you know, you start to wane on your commitments, you start to slack a little bit, you start to say, well, I mean, I couldn't achieve all this so fast anyway, so what's the rush? And they've put their finger on it and said that that is Quitter's day, which means for those of you in the room that did set uh, a resolution, you still have five days to not be a statistic, I guess that's what that means. And by the time I preach this next week in Vaughan, it'll be two days later and a whole bunch of people will have quit already, right? That's kind of what we're looking at if, if this is what the statistics are telling us. So historically, resolutions have been pretty much the same. We identify a problem, we look at a solution, but that isn't always enough. Something obviously isn't working. Right, And so, uh, it seems to me that one of the reasons we have, so many people, I'm gonna say we, so many of the reasons, one of the main reasons that we don't maintain the goals we've set is because we haven't actually attached them to a renewed sense of vision or renewed sense of purpose for our lives. Right, So we might look at things that we, that we wanna see take place in our lives, whether it's being more fit or whether it's being in control of our finances or whether it's uh, learning a new skill or whatever it might be. Um, but we sometimes I think we're, we're more inclined to just want the results and not always put in all the work that's necessary to actually achieve those results. We were kind of like a fast-paced culture where we want things as fast as we can as we can get them. We don't want always want to put the work into them. And so I, I don't even think as, as humans it comes naturally for us to say we want to put in all of the effort possible to see the results. We're almost wired in a sense to try and find out the fastest route to a result as we possibly can, right? Steve Jobs would actually hire people who were dubbed quote-unquote lazy because what he found was you could take these people who are lazy and they Found the fastest way to solve a problem. Part of what he would do after that is he would then move them out of the way and take the brilliant people and say, we have the solution, how do we take this to the next level and get everybody's money? There's something to this, right, in terms of how we're made. So it doesn't always come naturally to us. And and especially when it comes to this idea of um, having a sense of vision or a sense of purpose for our lives, this isn't naturally the way we tend to think about our lives. And a couple of questions that might help frame what it looks like to have a sense of purpose or vision for our lives. Like, what is most important to me, right? So if you ask yourself that question, what is most important to me? Hopefully, you have some things that come to your mind right away. But if you were to spend a little bit of time reflecting on those things, you might actually build your list and say, well, now I actually have to prioritize because I can't do all of these things. All of these things, if everything is important, then what is actually important, right? Maybe we ask questions like, what do I actually want my life to look like? Do I want it to look like it is right now? Like like this is the profile, if everything that was going on, that was the profile uh, of, of how my life is or how it's gonna be forever. Is this what I want it to be or do I actually maybe want it to look a little bit differently? And then we can even take it to the next level and say, what kind of influence do I wanna have on other people? What what, what kind of legacy do I want to leave behind? At 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, right, as I look back over my life, as others look back at my life, what are the things that I want to be remembered for? When we do that, yes, some of those things are connected to the small tasks that we put, like uh, they were a healthy person, right, or they were a skilled person. But actually, I think one thing that we long for is having a much broader sense of purpose in life. So somebody, or we can look at our own lives or somebody else can look at our lives and say, they weren't just a person who was busy doing the trendy things all the time. They were somebody whose life actually mattered their life made a difference. And we want this in our own lives, which is why as we start this new year and we move into this new sermon series, which we're calling Life on Purpose, what we're doing is we're actually going to spend some time looking at these desires that are within us to be different types of people, right? At the beginning of the year now, uh, I don't think any of us want to get to the end of the year uh, the same as we are right now. I don't think we want to just maintain the status quo in that we would be at the end of this year say, yeah, well, you know, it was about a 50-50 split between good and bad, but we made it through and, and nothing really changed. I don't, I don't think any of us really want that. I think if we're being totally honest with what's going on inside us, we have this sense of saying, I want to be a different person. Maybe we don't have all the categories for what that looks like, for what the differences are, but there is this sense that I want to be different, who I really want to be what I want to be remembered for, where I want to spend my time, all, all, all those kinds of things. What does it mean to live a fulfilled life? We want to get closer to that. And it's not optimism, like, or it's not just um, naive optimism. It's not wishful thinking to say, well, you know, in, in a year from now, I would love to be like that. It's not that. It's actually, there's something inside of us. There's something that is connected to the way that we've been made to pursue purpose, to want purpose, to have a sense of fulfillment, to long for meaning, to know that our existence isn't just a blip on a radar of all human existence, but there's actually a reason that we have this life to live. And so as we go through this series for the next eight weeks, what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be looking at the Gospel of Matthew, which is one of the um, eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life that was written down and given to us uh, in the Bible. And as we look at this, we're gonna look at Jesus's life and we're gonna learn things about Jesus in terms of what he did and what he said more importantly why he did them and how he went about doing them but we're not going to do this just so we have a little bit more understanding of of the life of jesus as important as that is because what we're going to discover is that as we look to jesus's life what we actually see is he's inviting us to follow him into a life that looks a lot like his everything jesus did was loaded with purpose, was loaded with meaning, was never just for the sake of it, there was always a reason behind what he was doing. And so this morning, as we just heard Barb read for us from uh, Matthew chapter 3 and 4, what we're going to look at is these two events that took place in Jesus' life, one right after the other. And and the really cool thing about this is that not only is it interesting what took place in his life, but actually his baptism and and his temptation in the desert, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about, these two things actually serve as a type of um, microcosm, if you will, of our whole life. What takes place in these two events, we can look at it and pull it apart and see that what Jesus experienced in this period of 40 days is a whole lot like what we experience over the course of our whole lives. So this is where we start in the Gospel of Matthew. We're coming out of Christmas time, right? For the last month of December, we've been celebrating Advent. We, uh, this longing, this expectation, this, this celebration uh, of the birth of Jesus. And then Jesus arrives. And if you were with us on Christmas Eve, we talked about uh, the time from his birth until when the wise men came, and, uh, which was a little bit quite a while after. It wasn't the same night he was born. But then this interesting thing happens in scripture. And that is there is no recollection, no recording rather of what took place from the time of that taking place all the way through until he's 30 years old. And this is like a major gap, which causes some people to ask questions. And you know what? When it comes to reading scripture, we ought to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. What we do know about that period of time is that Jesus um, and his family lived in a place called Nazareth, which was this uh, unknown place that was never written down in any of the Old Testament or any of the Apocrypha. It's not listed anywhere, which tells us that it is a hugely insignificant place, which is almost like this um, anticlimactic Finish to the story of Jesus's birth, right? The King of Kings has been born. The Lord of Lords has been born. These people are coming from all over the place to celebrate his birth. And then he goes into a small town. They say it was about 1800 people or so uh, at the time that Jesus was living there. And he lives like a normal Jewish life as a carpenter's son for 30 years, which I imagine if you are waiting on him to come, like if you were a Jew who was waiting for Jesus to come, to, to be the Messiah, to be the one who was gonna save you, the one you've been hearing about for generations. And all of a sudden you're like, he lives where? i never even heard of that place before. It would make you call a lot of things into question. So if we ask the question, but what was going on, I think we're actually right in check with where people have been historically. It's okay. But then Jesus, the time comes rather for Jesus's earthly ministry to finally begin. So his cousin John is... Uh, for lack of a better word, a bit of a freak show. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a prophet and he lives out in the desert and his clothes, his clothes are made out of camel hair and, and he eats locusts and honey. And, and what I'm telling you is we don't have the details of, of, of Jesus's upbringing, but we hear this story about this guy, John, and all of the weird things about his life. And so just, I mean, the biographies are just such interesting things, uh, the perspective that they offer us. And, and he's been called by God to, to come on the scene and to announce the one you've been waiting for is now here. And so John the Baptist is, is saying, prepare yourselves because Jesus, the King, the Messiah, he's here, he's gonna start doing the things we've been waiting for him to do. And Jesus, before he does anything, before he's done any miracles, before he has done any teaching, before he has any followers, he goes to his cousin John and he says, John, I need you to baptize me. And John's like, no, I'm not baptizing you. I've been waiting for you, you baptize me. And he goes, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to be. In order for me to be able to start my ministry, he says, to fulfill all righteousness, to do what is right in my father's eyes, I have to go through this process of being baptized. And so John says, okay, I'll baptize you. And we have this, this interesting verse here. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and enlightening him, lighting him up, like this illumination. This would have been significant, right? And there's this voice that's spoken from heaven, and the words that are spoken tell us who said it. God the Father says, this is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. So somehow, at the time of Jesus' baptism, God speaks audibly or noticeably, and and what he does is he actually pr- claims, he pronounces a blessing over Jesus. And what he's doing here is he's actually assigning or affirming rather Jesus's identity. He's saying, this is who you are. You are my son. He's saying, you are loved. And he's saying, I accept you, right? With whom I am well pleased, he says, I accept you. And so Jesus receives this blessing. And remember, this took place before he did any miracles, before he taught, before he had any uh, followers, before he had done anything spectacular, he lived a pretty pretty boring, regular life. And here is the father from heaven saying, I love you and you're mine and I'm pleased with you. What's happening here is God is putting this identity on Jesus and affirming him. Sorry, I think I got it for you here. And affirming him as his son before he had done anything, so that everything Jesus did from that point on, Jesus was doing as the beloved son of God who was accepted. Not in order that he would be loved or in order that he would be accepted, but as a loved and accepted person. And this is so important for us to grasp because what this means about the love of God is there's something in the way that God made us from the beginning that he was pleased with us and we can actually get back to this place of being, of God being pleased with us. But something has gone wrong, and I'll get into that a little bit later on. But what this does for Jesus is God assigns this identity and says, your purpose in life, whatever you do, wherever you go, whoever you teach, whatever miracle you, you make happen, whoever follows you, you're not doing that to try and get me to love you more because I already love you as much as you possibly could be loved. So everything you do comes out of this. So Jesus receives this purpose. He has this vision for his life. He knows that he exists to be exactly who his father said he would be. Wherever Jesus goes, he knows he's loved. He knows he's a son, and he knows he's accepted. Wherever he goes, whatever happens. And then this happens next. Oh, he was led into the desert or into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, right? So you get this beautiful verse, chapter, end of chapter three, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. Next verse, right away, immediately, there's no gap. He was immediately led into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And this turns out to be 40 days of Jesus being in a desert place in the wilderness where he's wandering around. And we're told that he fasts. So a 40-day fast is a tremendous length of time to fast. We can imagine that he would have been incredibly hungry. We can also imagine that he would have begun to feel delirious, right? Uh, he was on his own, as in he wasn't with any other people for this entire time. So imagine what happens. I don't know, perhaps some of you strong introverts would would give anything <laughs> for 40 days on your own. For me, I go crazy on my 40-minute drive anywhere. Like, I just need somebody else, right? Uh, and so he, he's on his, lo- on his own, probably beginning to feel lonely. Um, and, and again, with all of the, the physical and the mental exhaustion that's come because of his circumstances, probably starting to wonder. I mean, this, this idea of being in the wilderness implies this sense of, of wandering. Uh, of not knowing which way is which, not which way is right, which way is left, which way is up, on and on and on. And so this is Jesus's situation. This is where he's at. He had just been told, you are my son. I I love you and I'm pleased with you. This is the next thing. I, I wonder what Jesus was thinking about during that time when he was in the desert, right? And then it's at this point when the enemy comes in to begin tempting him. This is when the devil strikes, and, and he finds a way, it seems, the devil finds a way to present himself before Jesus to tempt him with all sorts of different things. And so uh, this is, when, when we hear the name Satan, um, this is, we're talking about the primeval enemy of God. Like the one who, for as long as there has been humanity has been trying to take people away and destroy and wreck their lives, to turn them away from God. And another way of saying this is Satan, as the most common name we find for him in Scripture, Satan chose to wage war with God. And the way that he goes about this war, first and foremost, is by one at a time trying to pick off anyone who claims to be a child of God. Anyone who says or believes or knows in their heart that they are a child of God, that they are loved, that they are accepted, Satan goes, oh, really? And I've got a lot of questions about how this whole thing went down, right? Like, like, did Satan show up in all the ways that we picture him to be around from the media? Like, did he look like a, you know, like a goat or did he look like, you know, a devil, a red Sort of being with a pitchfork or, or whatever. And, and one place I was reading is actually really brilliant. Um, he says, Well, we don't know exactly how Satan presented himself, uh, but we do know that Satan was present and that he was not silent because we have words that we'll get to in a second that he actually spoke things he said. But one of the ways that the, the writer, his name's Russell Moore, one of the ways he talked about this is he actually said, What if Satan uh, didn't necessarily present himself physically? but presented himself in such a way that he got into the psyche of Jesus and became, uh, and communicated to Jesus in such a way that Jesus began to wrestle with what he thought were his own thoughts. And then the writer says something brilliant. He says, because that's the way he often works in our own lives. When Satan comes to tempt us, we don't, can't say the devil is behind every corner because we're not looking for a little shady guy running around and sneaking around. The most powerful thing he can do is get inside our minds and begin to make us think these things as if we created them ourselves. And I know this is a powerful, big idea for sure, but we have to be aware that Satan, if he is willing to go up against Jesus, the son of God, if he's waged war with the creator of the universe and has been at that for for millennia, then we can be certain that he hates us enough to come after us as well. And so he clearly wants to destroy Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he tempts him with three things, provision, security, and status. Three things we are tempted with and are right in front of us all the time, provision, security, and status. And so to an incredibly very hungry 40 day long fast Jesus, he says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. On the surface, this could look like nothing more than, hey Jesus, you're really hungry. Wouldn't these rocks taste good, right? on the surface it could look like it's just about filling his stomach but if you notice what he says he says if you are the son of god and I appreciate how you read that barb you you give it a little bit of personality right if you're the son of god then go ahead turn these stones into bread if you are sent from heaven surely you can do whatever you want i mean who knows what else you could possibly do? And what's cool, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, later on he doesn't turn rocks into bread, uh, but he takes five loaves of bread and turns them into enough food to feed five thousand people. So there's almost like a built-in little prophecy in here about what Jesus actually could do. And so Jesus responds by saying, um, "Man, people, man, like people, kind." don't just live on bread, the things that fill our stomachs. That's not the only sustenance we need. We live off every single word that comes from the mouth of God. And so if this is a temptation for Jesus to find provision in himself as opposed to trusting in his father, then what we see is Satan saying, if you were the son of God, your father would provide you with everything that you need. And if you're hungry, why not turn? Why not do this? God will provide for you. And he says, no, 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 no. the thing that's more important is is not that, the thing that's more important is me trusting my God, trusting my Father, that he will actually do what he said he would do for me. Second temptation. Satan says, if you are the son of God, jump off the top of this building. He takes him to the high point of a temple. says, jump off the top of this building, because if you do, as the son of God, of course God will command the angels to come and rescue you. This is amazing to me, because what it shows is that Satan is adapting To the circumstance when Satan says um, if you fall to the ground God will send the armies of angels to be there to rescue you so you won't even strike your foot across a rock he's actually quoting Old Testament Scripture so get this Jesus just said no Satan you're wrong about this bread thing we're not supposed to worry about that we're supposed to trust in God and, and, and trust in every word that comes from his mouth. So Satan goes, oh, you trust in the word of God? No problem. I'll use the word of God, twist it a little bit to use it against you to then say, well, now you can give yourself over to me and succumb to this temptation. Isn't it fascinating? I love that. How, how Satan is, is, is smart. He's, 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 uh, um, he's an accuser, but he's like this liar and he's this intelligent being in, in how he adapts this. And so Jesus... Again, if this is about provision and if this is about security, Jesus trusted in his father and said, well, no, I have everything I need from whom my father says I I am, rather, as his child, who he's pleased with and who he accepts. I, I don't need this. And so Satan tries one more time, one final attempt. And he says, bow down to me and I'll give you everything you see, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Which this calls into question the way that Satan was presenting himself, right? This could have been Satan presenting himself to Jesus and giving him a vision. How do you actually see uh, all of the kingdoms of the world, right? Some of you who are Disney fans like me picture uh, Mufasa and Simba on the rocks, saying, "These are the Pride Lands, Simba. Everything you see, you know, but not that place over there." But what Satan is doing is he's saying, "No, no, no. I somehow Satan is saying somehow he has the keys to all of the world kingdoms, as if it, it, kingdoms, as if it's his to give." over to anyone else. And he brings this before Jesus. But again, Jesus resists him and says, get away from me, Satan. Get away from me, Satan. Don't, don't put the Lord to the test. Rather, serve, serve the Lord your God, or worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. How how could Jesus say this? Jesus could say this because he was so confident in the identity that his father had given him. When Jesus began his earthly ministry and, and the father from heaven pronounced this blessing over him, Jesus knew that it was only a matter of time until he would actually be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus knew that if that's what his father had sent him to earth to do, to be the one that would rescue every single person from what they were going through, that he would be the savior that he would be the king of kings, the one where every nation, it says in, scriptures, in the scripture, um, Philippians chapter two, a point in time will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. If Jesus knew that was going to happen, he knew it was only a matter of time. So why would he take anything that the devil had to offer? Any counterfeit version of what Jesus knew was already his. It was only a matter of time until he inherited it. So he says, away from me. And so again, this whole thing, this whole series, uh, all of Scripture, I would, I would argue, uh, everything we do as a church is never just about learning things about the life of Jesus so we can say, hey, I learned something cool today, or hey, I learned some new thing. It's not, it's not about that. Rather, it's about looking at the life of Jesus, seeing what he did, what he said, why he did those things, and then saying, how does my life actually begin to look like that? And the beautiful thing about it is Jesus says, come with me and I'm going to show you. But before I can take you anywhere, before I can show you anything, you have to know who you are. Because before Jesus did anything, said anything, taught anything, had any followers, he knew who he was. And as a result of knowing that he was the Son of God, that he was loved, that he was accepted, everything else he did came out of that purpose. And this is actually the way it was always meant to be for every single one of us. In, in the Garden of Eden, when when God creates in Genesis chapter two, the first book of the Bible, chapter two, talks about all the things that God created and then he creates Adam and Eve, the the first man, the first woman. And he says, it is very good. And he pronounces a blessing over them. And they live this life in perfect relationship with God, blessed by him. They have everything provided for them in that garden. They have this perfect uh, relationship with him. All of it is right there. But then what happens immediately after that's pronounced over them, if you're familiar? Satan shows up and says, did God really say, see how he's like this smart, adapting creature, but actually still uses the same tricks all the time? And, and they fell into that temptation. They trusted Satan when he, when he lied to them. And, and really what they did is they say, well, God said we have everything we need, but I want something more. Maybe I don't have everything we need. The exact same thing Satan was tempting Jesus with in this moment is the exact same thing he tempts us with all the time. Their identity was beloved creation. After that happened, immediately following their rebellion from God, God immediately initiates this this process, which would then turn into uh, generations of God relentlessly pursuing humanity to say, I want to save you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to be your God and, I'm, and you're going to be my people. And he makes this covenant, this promise with, with the nation of Israel, the people of God as, as they're referred to, the nation of Israel. And he says, uh, wherever you go, you worship me and I will take care of you and I will take care of you and provide for you and everything you need. Just trust me, it will be yours. And, and there's 40 days, or excuse me, 40 years where the Israelites, the people of God, are wandering in the desert. There's so many parallels between um, the, the created order and the story of humanity throughout the Old Testament and what's taking place with Jesus in, in these two back-to-back events. The identity is put over them. They uh, the identity is put over them, and then they go into this period of wandering. The difference being, of course, that humans <laughs> uh, rejected and didn't believe, fell into the temptation, and Jesus is showing us it's actually possible to have lived a life not this way. Uh, The Israelite people actually eventually find themselves having to escape slavery, and part of the process of escaping slavery requires them to walk through a body of water. What does Jesus do? He goes into the water and is baptized. What is he doing? He's showing us, I'm showing you how life was actually meant to be lived, and I'm teaching you, I'm revealing to you that it's actually possible. So what that means for us today is that when we now come to God and we say, "I, I do trust in you, Jesus. I want to follow you No, my life is not all put together and yes I've got some things I need to work out and, but really I need your help in working this out but I, I trust you Jesus that you are who you say you are I've, I've looked at your life and the things that you've done and I believe that this isn't just some big idea or some fairy tale in a book but there's actually a way that you encounter me when we say Jesus I trust you the thing that happens immediately at that moment of trust is the father in heaven goes you are my daughter and I love you and I'm pleased with you. Or he says, you are my son and I love you and I'm pleased with you and I accept you. And we are given a restored identity, the identity we were always meant to have that we walked away from. And so we're seeing how Jesus's life not only gives us a picture of what it means to live like him, but it's by trusting in his life, what he did and what he said and who he is, that he actually gives us access to the life that we've wanted. And this, this happens to us. Many of us have trusted in God. We've trusted and we've received this identity. But what happens so often? You can leave a, a service where you're feeling um, like you're full of faith and we're feeling full of trust, and we've been around loving people, the loving people of God, or, or maybe for those of you that have been like on a short-term trip, uh, serving in some other part of the world, you have this sense of closeness to God, and you're like, yes, I am who he says I am, and, and I believe in who he is, and what's the next thing that happens? Boom, the enemy strikes, and he says, was that really a good worship service, or did you just have some emotional sense, sentimentality, something just felt warm and fuzzy, or was there actually an encounter with God? He says, the enemy will say to us, are you actually thinking about skipping out on work tomorrow or school or not going back? Uh, you know, I mean, because that, that you coming up with that and not being committed, I mean, somebody who was really a son or a daughter of God would be through with their commitments, but here you are wondering if you really need to go back. Or he'll say, oh, you know, I don't, I see, the enemy will say, I see that you're, you seem to be really stressed about how you're gonna pay off those bills that you racked up over the course of December, right? Uh, Didn't your Father in heaven say that you have everything you need? That's interesting to see you worrying about all this. Because when we receive this new identity, the enemy says, oh, now I've got someone I need to worry about. Now there's somebody I want to take out. And again, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation is this microcosm picture of what our life experience looks like. This is what life looks like. These moments where we're certain in faith, where we know that God provides for us, where we know that we're secure with him, where we know that we have status with him, meaning that identity of being his child, but then the enemy attacks that right away. He says, you need more. He says, you're hungry. Maybe not for food, but for something else. God isn't giving you all that. Come with me and I'll show you how you can get it. He tempts us with security. He says, are you really loved? Your behavior looking like that? You think God still really loves you? You think he's going to keep his word up when you don't treat him the way that you said you would? and status. He says, don't you want more? Like, like, like picture Jesus being uh, tempted with all of the kingdoms of the world. Satan does that in his own way by putting before us the things that the kingdom of this world says are important. Don't you want more money? Well, don't do your taxes properly. It's easy. Or you know you can slip a little bit of money out of that, uh, that expense account. Or you know uh, that if you just went online for 25 bucks, you can buy a copy of that exam that some student took last time. You can get their papers and you can like, don't you know you can do that? You can get the status, you can get the grades, you can get the amass, the wealth, you can get whatever you want. God said he'd give it to you, but it seems like that's taking longer than you hoped for. And he starts to lead us away from that. He tempts us with these things all of the time because at the core, every single one of the temptations that Satan led Jesus to are the same things that he leads us to, a decision to say no to God and yes to him. Satan tries to manipulate us and twist it to make God look like he's the problem, like the identity he's given us isn't true and isn't going to last, and to make him look like he is the solution. So we're constantly being bombarded with all of these things that make us question the fatherhood of God. Say, well, he did say, or I, I did have this certainty that he would do something, but it seems to be taking longer than I hoped or expected. Maybe I will try and go and do it on my own, which again is turning from him and doing it our own way and on and on and on the list goes. My life experience has been pretty rough lately, maybe you're saying, or, or I haven't seen what some might say, you know, I, I can't rather say what some would say that God is good. I, I don't see how God is good. If God is real, the things that he's been doing or the things that have been going on around me. Don't, those don't feel too good. Maybe, maybe I'm not his child. Maybe he's not real. Maybe he's not doing any of this. And, and yet for Jesus, there's no temptation that he could not, like, like there's no temptation that he would f- fall into. He res- was able to resist every single one of them because all of it started with him being so certain of who he already was. Child of God, who is beloved and accepted. And that is what Jesus invites us into. He comes first and foremost to do for us that which we could never do on our own. If we were the ones in the desert facing Satan, every single one of us would have eaten that, those rocks. But Jesus resists and shows us that it is possible And then he says, come and live life with me. Let me show you how this can be true in your own life as well. How you can live out every part of it knowing what your identity is as a child of the beloved God. And if you're not at that place where you trust him already, where where you're still working things out and trying to make a decision, checking out this whole Jesus Christianity religion thing, then, then what Jesus is saying, well, take the next step. And he says that to those that are, that are new on the journey, and he says, that's to those, he says the same thing to those of us who are way down the journey. He says, take the next step and trust me. He says, come on this journey, learn a little bit more about my life, see what I was doing, why I did it, and then, and then receive my invitation to trust me and making it true in your own life. And when we do receive that, when we do trust him, things begin to happen that are so far beyond what we could have ever asked or imagined. He starts to do these things inside us. We almost surprise ourselves because of what Jesus begins to do as we live out who we were always meant to be. So as a church, one of the things we're going to be doing over the next eight weeks is we're going to be uh, working through what we're calling a community reading plan. Every once in a while, Pastor Tony uh, creates a reading guide and a devotion. So for those that are are new to this whole upper room thing, just to make that all clear, because Pastor Tony isn't a figure in my imagination, um, we are one church in two places. So there's actually another site, another group of people that are meeting in the the movie theater in in Vaughn. And so they're there, we're here, we have this staggered preaching uh, model, uh, which means that next week Vijay Krishnan will be here, and he looks very different than I do. You'll know right away that he's a different guy uh, as soon as he gets here, and it's not just the beard thing. Um, and he will preach, and he'll do part two of this series while I'm over there preaching part one, and let us juggle it, and let us commute so you don't have to commute. You get to come to church in your own community while we get to do this this other thing. And what's going to take place over the next number of weeks is this community reading plan where uh, on Sundays uh, you'll be able to, you'll receive an email uh, that will have a devotional kind of reflection uh, about um, the and the next passage of scripture that we're going to be dealing with in the, in the coming weeks. But then it also provides a five-day reading plan. And over the course of these eight weeks, together as a church, we're all going to be reading through the entire Gospel of Matthew, all 28 chapters. So when I say this stuff about taking this next step on the journey, wherever you're at, get on that email list. and and, and pursue the Word of God at the very least, to say, you know what, Uh, 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 with all the other things I could try and do with my time, at least I'm going to commit a couple of hours over the course of the next two months We can read the entire thing in about 10, if you read about 10 minutes a day, you can read the entire thing. It's not a tremendous thing. But as I read it, I'm not just looking to learn about what Jesus did. I'm actually learning to see how that makes a difference for me. Wherever you're at, you can do that. You can also go to upperroom.ca and just find wherever the blog tab is, and all these things will be loaded up into the blog as well. uh, So you can find those there. I'm going to invite the worship team to come uh, and join us up here. Jesus is inviting us into a life of purpose, a life of meaning. And one of the things we will discover over the course of the next bunch of weeks together is what all of that is going to look like. What do we do? What do we say? How do we go about this? But, but none of that can begin to take place until we first say, I know who I am. And I know who Jesus is making me to be. And so the band is, the worship team is gonna lead us in this song called In Christ Alone, which, which might be familiar to some, it might be new to others. And it's, it's, a, a, it's, it's more like a hymn. It's loaded with just so much rich meaning. All of our songs are, that's what we try to do. But one of the things I want us to reflect in, wherever you're at on this journey, is saying all of it begins with Jesus. So in Christ alone my hope is found, is, is I think the very first line of the song, is that right? Yeah, in Christ alone my hope is found. And, and if you are able to proclaim that and say, yes, that's true, then do that. But maybe you're at this stage where you're like, well, where is my hope found? Is, is my hope found in Jesus? Is it found in somebody, in somewhere else, somebody else? Is my hope in my own education, my own status, my own banking account, whatever? Or, or is it, what does it even mean to find my hope in Jesus? And as we work through the song, reflect on it and pray and worship and see how God will meet you in the midst of wherever you're at. Father, God, thank you for the blessing you pronounced over your son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you make it possible for us to receive that same blessing over us. On our own, we're lost. On our own, we're hungry. On our own, we're wandering in the desert. On our own, we're falling into the devil's schemes all the times, all the time. But Jesus, you didn't just come and resist the devil. You came and you lived out your identity as a beloved and accepted child of God. And that informed every single thing you did. And not only that, you invite us into a life that gets to have that for ourselves too. You give that to us as a gift. And so Jesus, as we sing this song now, we do ask that you would meet us, that we would encounter you in this moment, that we would have this renewed sense of purpose and vision And that we would know that it all begins with understanding and believing who you have said that we are. A child of yours. Who has everything we need provided for us. Who has all the security we could ever want. And has the identity of being your own. You are our God and we are your child. So we thank you. We praise you. And we continue to worship you in this song now. Amen.